0: Um, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy. This is where we've been. We've been in 1 Timothy uh, for the last couple of weeks and what we're doing in 1 Timothy is establishing what we, um, what we are calling a healthy understanding of church. And this is important for us um, because part of the thrust here at Buffalo City Church, part of what's going on is we're moving towards covenant membership. I um, mean that's just sort of a fancy way of saying that we want, we want to partner together as the people of God, um, just with some basic things in order that we can carry out God's purposes in this fellowship and in our community at large. Um so we're going to First Timothy because Paul writes this letter directly to Timothy in order that he might have a greater understanding of what the church should look like. So in the first week we looked at uh Paul uh giving Timothy some specific instruction related to some guys who were who were kind of making a mess. They were making a mess straight. If you need a Bible, Larry's got some back there. Throw your hand in the air. Yeah, you got one over here. Sweet. Okay. So, um, uh, these guys were making a mess. They were preaching these strange doctrines, these silly myths, these things that were going on. Um, and, and so, Paul admonished the Philippians to engage them, to address them very specifically. Um, and then, Paul sort of bursts into this praise, um, what we call doxology, speaking of God's glory. He bursts into this in the end of the chapter and outlined for us that this is a gospel issue. Um, if we look at verse 15 of chapter 1. One is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul understood everything that was happening, all of these negative things that were going on in the church to be gospel issues. He desired for the people to see, to believe the gospel, believe the fact that they could not make a way to God the Father. They were broken by sin. Um, that relationship with God was broken by sin and could be reestablished and only could be reestablished through trusting Christ. So that's where we we are, and then last week we moved into this understanding that Paul says to, first of all, when he gets to this practical understanding, we we get to this part where Paul says in the beginning of chapter 2, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And so Paul dives then into... Dives into our understanding of prayer, giving us um, different understandings of who prayer should be made for, when they should be made, um, and then the result of prayer and what we pray in light of. Again, he views this as a primarily gospel issue. Praying is rooted; we pray in light of the gospel. Verse five: For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This mediator is Christ. We are praying uh, that uh, um, back in verse 2 for kings and all who are in authority so that we lead a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God and our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, when we said all men, we're not speaking universally, but we're speaking of all types of men. No longer is salvation only to the Jew, but also to the Greek, which is good news for us because there are very few of us probably in here who are who are Jews by heritage so we need to as a people trust Christ and, and this is now opened up to all types of people um, so now we move into a text that is relatively difficult um, and so if you uh, let, me, let me give you a couple of disclaimers to start let me give you a couple of disclaimers <laughs> One. Um, Hopefully, Mark just talked about community, hopefully we have an understanding that we as a people are accessible to each other. So some of the things that I might say this morning might rub you wrong, might, 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 you might be confused, you might think to yourself, well, that guy, he's just speaking craziness, and so you might get in the car afterwards, and you might start to, to drive away, and you might think to yourself, well, that was just bogus and whatever. Here's what I want you to know. Disclaimer number one, I'm available after this service for you to come talk to me. If there's anything that comes up in this text, you have access to me, I will stand up front here, you will have access to me to talk to me. Do I have all the answers? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I'm available to talk through and hopefully at some point get get you some resources to help. Disclaimer number two, um, and my wife doesn't know this, but I'm going to say this anyways because I'm being led to do this. My wife and I are planning now, she's, I'm planning, she's going to join me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're planning to, at some point in the near future, sit down and have a sort of a ask us anything related to, because where we're going this morning is biblical manhood and womanhood, and understanding what the Bible teaches about being a man and a woman. And so um, my wife is incredibly gifted and I feel like I have a, a, a place where I can come to you as one who understands, a woman who is strong and who has an incredible grasp of God's word and can teach it and, and understands it in a fantastic way but also understands some of these concepts very deeply that we're going to talk about this morning. And so. Anecdotal evidence is just that, it's anecdotal. It's rarely it doesn't it doesn't give us a, a ground in, in scripture, but I also understand that my wife is, is incredibly talented and gifted and I would love to partner with her if she accepts. I would love to partner with her in answering any questions. So look for that in the next couple weeks. Third disclaimer, good news is that if I say something bad, I'm going on vacation this week. So, see you later. Um, if, you have, uh, if you have a question, mark at com. That's where you can send your angry emails. So, um, but no, in all seriousness, We are available. This is why we're doing church in the way that we're doing it in the context of community. I don't want you to get in the car and say, well, I didn't understand that. That didn't make any kind of sense to me, so I'm leaving. What I want you to know is that I'm accessible. A lot of us have been in church contexts where we think to ourselves, look, the pastor's not an accessible guy, and so we kind of like run through all these different scenarios in our mind, and then we just wind up just sitting and being frustrated in the church. We don't want that to be the case. You can come to me and ask me anything. I promise you, I might not have the answer for you, but I promise you that I can help you move in a direction uh, that is helpful. So those are my disclaimers this morning. Um, yeah, okay. So, with that in mind, we're going to get into this text. So, this morning, uh, we're looking at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, and this is difficult and we need help, so let me pray first. Lord God, help us. Okay, let's read. Okay. Okay. 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8 through verse 15. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. This is an extension of what we were talking about last week. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved to the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Okay, alright. This text is hard. So let's go. I have three things for you this morning. I want to give you sort of the big idea, that's the thrust behind why Paul is writing this. Okay, I want to give you the thrust behind why Paul is writing this. This is what I believe he's, this is what he's getting at. Paul outlines for Timothy. You remember this letter is written to Timothy. Paul outlines for Timothy. Proper conduct for men and women and how their roles complement one another. So very quickly here we're going to get to 30,000 feet. Very quickly, we're going to get to 30,000 feet, but some of these practical application points we're going to flesh out um, over time, maybe when you want to ask my wife and I questions, maybe after this service or whenever, we, we can flesh out some of those practical applications. So here's where I, I want to give you a, a forecast. I've sort of been moving this direction probably because of my background, but here we go. So uh, this this morning, this is what we're going to talk about. The first part of this passage is related to conduct. It's related to conduct for both men and women. Conduct for both men and women. And then we're gonna move to 30,000 feet. We're gonna talk about compatibility. Men and women are a biblical understanding of what man and woman is and how we are compatible. And then finally, complementarity, which is how our roles complement one another. Okay, so let's start with conduct. And I'm gonna spend just a brief amount of time on this because this is an extension This is an extension of how Paul is talking to Timothy throughout the course of the book. Remember that Timothy is given this this letter, and there's no chapter, no verse. The way that we're breaking this up is is almost arbitrary. Um, We see different themes and different things sort of pop up throughout the book, but Timothy would have sat down, read this in its entirety, and so as we're talking about some of these things being gospel issues, um, this then is also related to a gospel issue. So in verse 8, right? Therefore this is to the men. Therefore I want men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So we just came off this admonishment to pray in in verses 1 through 7 for everyone and then Paul addresses very specifically the men saying therefore I want the men in every place to pray lifting up Holy hands. Whenever we see that word therefore, we know that Paul is about to say, he's about to give us a key. Paul's about to say, in light of what was just said, consider the following. He says, Lifting up holy hands. Um, Paul probably had a particular group of people in mind because this is probably related to culturally some of the things that were going on. So Paul says, um, lifting up holy hands without or dissension, he probably knew of some guys, including a couple guys that he named back in chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were then excommunicated from the church because, uh, because of sort of subscribing to these silly myths and these endless genealogies, these doctrine. Um, but these people probably needed to hear exactly this. These weird doctrines and myths and genealogies were leading to wrath, anger, and dissension. And remember that if this is first and foremost a gospel issue, the gospel unifies it does not divide. The gospel is a unifying thing because we find our identity in Jesus Christ. That is where we as a people, if you have trusted Christ, find our identity first. It's not in our careers, it's not in our status in society, it's not how much money we make, it's not any of that other stuff, but it's in Jesus Christ first and foremost. We are unified. If you are in Christ this morning, this is a gospel issue, we are unified. But Paul saw that the conduct wasn't following that specifically, and so he he speaks very specifically to Timothy uh, without wrath and dissension. So. As we kind of look at verses 8 through 10, then, um, this is a principle-based discussion. And what I mean by that is that uh, this this admonishment from Paul to the men to be unified in the gospel and to let their conduct reflect that of gospel impact is one that directly translates to us. Not that we're a bunch of guys who are punching each other in the face in this, in this context, but our tendency is to move towards things that are not gospel impact. Oriented. Our tendency as a people are to move towards our own understandings and our own, uh, to rest on our own merits and not on the merits of Jesus Christ. And so the principle here is simply this that we as men would be unified in the gospel, and the men who, Tim, who Paul is writing to would be unified in the gospel and not, uh, not allow their anger or their wrath or their dissension to dictate or govern uh, how they interacted with one another. Um, okay, so, uh, th- and this is really what this, with, with the direction that this goes, and what it means for us as a church, right? We, guys, recognize that everything is secondary to the gospel and the unity that we have in it. And this goes for women as well. Everything else is secondary to the unity that we have in the gospel. Uh, Okay, so guys, does your brother to your left or to your right, does he have more of a sin problem than you do? The answer is no. We are all broken by sin and are, are, are destined to spend eternity apart from God unless we know Jesus Christ. Do you justify yourself through good works, right understandings, work ethic? The answer is no. We don't justify ourselves to that. We can only be justified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Your righteousness is... If your righteousness is tied up in your ability to do things the right way compared to other people, the answer to all of these is the we no, and this is what Paul is getting at. This is a gospel issue for Paul in verse 8. So this is the takeaway then. Paul addresses conduct for the men, and he does so in understanding that right conduct can only happen as an overflow, as an overflow of the gospel's impact in our life. Okay. So, as we move then into verse 9, Paul turns his attention to the women, and this is sort of how the thrust throughout the, the rest of this chapter. In verse 9, Paul says, likewise, and he's reminding the women also to pray, to be prayerful. He's saying, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by the means of by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. So he's giving some specific instruction, and some of this is bound up in um, some of this is bound up in cultural ideals. So in Ephesus, where Timothy was, there was this cult uh, where there, the, the where the women in the cult were the priests. Um, so it's almost like a flip. It's almost an inverse of what, of what we see typically in, in our society. Women were the ones in prominent places, and the way that they set themselves apart was with their dress. They set themselves apart by the way that they dressed themselves. And so Paul sees this cultural thrust here, and what he's not doing then is giving fashion advice. Again, this as well is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. What he's not saying is like, hey, women, I want you to all take out your gold rings and put them in the, in the offering basket. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying if you braid your hair, like that's, a, that's an, ex, uh, 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 an exclusive statement, like no longer can you be part of this fellowship. What Paul is saying is uh, that uh, your place in society is not dictated or determined by your external appearance but by your, uh, by your trust and your your identity in Christ. This is an identity gospel-related issue. Good works, then, he says in verse 10, good works as is proper for a woman making claim to godliness. Um, this is, again, not Paul or me giving fashion advice or telling you not to buy nice clothing. You're like, I have to feel guilty if I spend more than $7 on uh, a clearance rack item? No, that's not what this is saying, but rather an admonishment to believe in the gospel and not to seek worth in exter- external appearances or in attention. Our status symbols dictated by our, our, our these status symbols are often dictated by our culture, and this is maybe timely for us, because I think our society sort of like bends this direction, but there's a lot of times throughout history where this just would not have been an issue. But the principle holds true. Where the principle holds true, where we need to be believing the gospel and adorning ourselves in good works. Women, adorning yourselves in good works and not setting yourself apart. Um, Your set-apartness does not come through what you wear or what you put on externally, but in the fact that you are redeemed, that you're blood bought by Jesus Christ. So what does this mean for us? We look at a text like this, I think for a long time the church has just shot straight to behavior modification, look like this, do this, here's a laundry list, start checking off the boxes. And that's not what Paul is telling Timothy. Paul is not telling Timothy to check the boxes. What he's saying is to believe the gospel. The price has been paid. Don't feel pressured to externally look act, dress or be a certain way, but find freedom from that garbage understanding. And focus on the fact that you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but you have been made alive with Christ. Don't compare yourselves to others physically. Rather, seek to understand what good works are that flow out of gospel truth. Adorn yourself in those. This is heart. This is gospel. This is truth. And I just have to say this because like, because when, when, we, when we look at this text, I think like immediately... Even me, like this is this text is probably one of the hardest in the Bible for me, like because I just I just don't understand like why 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 is this such a big deal? And I have to remind myself constantly that these are always gospel issues for Paul. This is always gospel issue um, in this text. Um, And and what I'm saying to you is this text is freedom because you no longer have to rely on yourself. You no longer have to rely on the fact that, uh, that you have to somehow make up this difference. But you can rely wholly on Jesus Christ. Maybe you're just thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm right. Like, this is just a societal, misogynistic dumpster fire. But that's not what this is. That's not what this is. This is gospel truth. I would, like, okay, and and for for a lot of us, too, maybe some of the women in this room have been abused by a text like this, whether verbally or physically or somehow have experienced abuse because some man has come into your life and said, no, you've got to look like this and do this, and this is the way that you're justified. That is an abuse of the text. And I wish I could say that I'm sorry, but I can't. I can't make it right. So in this moment, my admonishment to you is to trust Jesus. Trust that Jesus is making it life. He came into the world to save sinners, like Paul says, of whom He is the first, is the foremost. And we, as people, trust then that He is bringing all things, that he's making all things right. We talked a lot this morning about the fact that as as we move towards glory. We as a people, now um, we are thinking, we are we are our trajectory is that way in order that we might spend eternity. And God is shaping everything, he's making all things new, even as we speak in this room. He's making all things new. So that hurt, that pain, that abuse that might have come out of this text, I'm, I wish I could say that I'm sorry, but God is the one who makes it right. This is the gospel. Freedom not to do things externally, to set ourselves apart. <coughs> To seek or to generate our own righteousness, but rather relinquishing our rights, acknowledging that we are totally incapable and destined to die apart from Jesus, men and women alike. Broken relationship with God the Father has led to broken relationship between people in our lives. That is the fact of the matter. And we need to have it restored, and the only way to see that happen is in Jesus Christ. So this is the conduct piece, right? Verses 8 through 10, Paul is giving conduct for both men and women, a conduct that flows directly out of gospel truth. Anything else is, anything else is uh behavior modification. Anything else is behavior modification. We need to do it as a people first, believe the gospel. Okay, now we're now we're going to get to thirty thousand feet. to get to verse eleven through fifteen here. And where I want to go right now is sort of back up, and I want to rewind a little bit and think about uh, think about creation. Um, but we're going to talk about so this this idea of compatibility, and we're gonna we're sort of gonna I'm gonna give you some ideas related to biblical man and woman and what it means to be man and woman according to scripture. So in verse. Eleven. Paul then writes, "A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, and love, and sanctity themselves. Restraint. Okay. So this is where it kind of gets hard. That's why we're going to thirty thousand feet." Genesis 1, 26 28. Okay, so this is what we need to know about the compatibility piece. That God created man and woman in the garden. God created both man and woman in the garden. We need to have an understanding that we, in the creation account, were created by God, and that we were both also created in God's image. Both of those things are true. Both of those things are universal truth. There's no man, no woman, who is not created in the image of God. And so we have this sameness that we possess. This sameness that we possess. And then in Genesis uh, 2.18, God says very specifically, it's not good for man to be alone, and that he created a helper suitable for him. He created a helper suitable for man and that was woman. Again, the sameness was what binded them and not separated them. So as we're moving forward in 1 Timothy 2, we see that these distinct roles starting to roll or sort of be laid out for us for the church. We first need to see that men and women were both created by God and in God's image. This makes men and women equal. Men and women are equal in the fact that they are created by God and in God's image. One is not inferior to another. Man is not inferior to woman. Woman is not inferior to man. Both are created by God and in God's image. And then, and after we see the compatibility and the sameness that man and woman possess, then we see a, a difference in the intended roles. A helper suitable for him. And then our text this morning in the case of the church. I, wanted, I want you to know this. That even as we look is this, this is what society tells you. And I need you to set these biases aside. Society tells you that different roles have different rankings. But the Bible never says that. The Bible never says that different roles have different rankings. God didn't say, "I'm going to create man and then I'm going to create a lesser being." What He says is, "I'm going to create man in My image and I'm going to create woman in My image." Both of the, that holds true throughout all of Scripture. And anything given to man and given to woman, one is not in or one is not superior to the other. The roles given are equal. They're different, but they're equal. OK, um, I, I want to I read you this quote, because I think that this is really important. This is, this is I mean, if, if, you're, if you're thinking, wow, this is, this is really different um, than, than what society says, you're right. Um, and also, this is not an issue that's like resolved or settled even within the Christian community. There are a lot of people who have a lot of different positions on this. Um, and I, what I'm giving you this morning is what I believe to be truth from the text. Okay, let me read this to you. This is from a, a, a blogger. Her name is Jen Wilkins. Um And she, she wrote this blog in response to some stuff that's going on in this world, this understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um uh, on the community group discussion, guys, this week I've, I've given you like the name of her, her blog and the name of the article. So if you want to go read it in its entirety, you can. It's very, very good. Uh, I would highly, highly recommend it. It might even increase or shed some additional light on this for you. Let me read this for you. God creates man, notes that he needs a suitable helper, then commands him to give uh, names to every living creature. The, name, the animals parade by, this is a creation account. The animals parade by, ostrich, camel, alligator. Adam obediently names each one. It must have been a very long line of creatures, great and small, as Adam gave names to all livestock and to birds of the heavens and to every beast in the field, yet none of them is a suitable partner for him. Though half of them share his maleness, none of them share his humanness. They are beautifully formed, but they are not formed in the image of God. Imagine Adam's state of mind as the animals praying past him. Ostrich, not like you. Camel, not like me. Alligator, not like you. He becomes increasingly aware, though, surrounded by God's good gifts. He is very fundamental sense alone. You and I know what the solution to this aloneness will be, but the text takes its time establishing that his state is not good, because pulling back the, before pulling back the curtain, before Eve can be prepared for Adam, Adam must first be prepared for Eve. And then, after a brief nap, Adam awakes, and there she is at last. Adam bursts into poetry, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she came from man. Don't miss what Adam is saying. After the animal parade of one not like him after another, at last he sees Eve and rejoices that she is wonderfully, uniquely like him. Same of my same. This is literally what the text says. Same of my same. Same of my same. She shall be called like me because she came from me. The Bible's first word on man and woman is not what separates them, but what unites them. It is the celebration of compatibility of shared humanness. Ours is not a faith that teaches men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Ours is, get that. Ours is not a faith that teaches men are from Mars and women are from Venus. First and foremost, we are the same. That was mine. Okay. Rather, it teaches that both man and woman are from the same garden, created by and in the image of the same God, sharing a physical, mental, and spiritual sameness that unites the two of them in a way that they cannot be united to anything else in creation. Before the Bible celebrates the complementarity of the sexes, it celebrates their compatibility and sociability. And so should we. So before we talk about these designated roles in the church, we first must understand that the same about man and woman created by God, and in the image of God. OK. So let's move then to this complementarity piece, how men and women are designed to complement one another. And remember, going into this discussion, one role not inferior to another, One role, not superior to one another. Created first, created second, doesn't matter. Those things are not commentaries. What society will tell you, what society will tell you is that man and woman, if woman was created second, that means she's inferior. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that secondness is secondary. It teaches that that both man and woman are equal in that they are created by God and in the image of God. Okay, so, complementarity. So in verses 11 and 12, and I promise we'll even address the last three verses here quickly. Because of Paul's argument in verse 13, right? For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, right? Creation order is important, but only in that it sets these rules apart. Not in that it makes one superior or one inferior. Paul sees that the order of creation, men are charged to exercise dominion over the garden. So as men, we are called to exercise dominion. And then woman was created second and charged to assist the man's exercise of dominion over creation. Okay, here's an aside. Here's an aside for you. Um, If you see the word helper in the text, if you see the word "helper," and it says a helper suitable for him, this is an outworking of the Godhead. This is an outworking of the Godhead. The the New Testament calls the Spirit, who we claim to be equal person in the Trinity. There is no distinction, right? What, uh, what one nature, three persons. This is the this is the Trinity. Um, the, the spirit is frequently uh, referred to in the New Testament as the, here's a word, the paraclete, which means helper. That means helper. So if you're a woman and you think to yourself, well, there, there's no way that a helper status can be secondary, or it can't be secondary, but it is uh, it is an inferior role, then I'm sorry, but you are wrong because one of the persons of the Godhead is referred to specifically and consistently as helper. Okay, that was why I Okay. Um, again, one role here isn't considered lesser in Scripture. Both were given divinely by God to read to each individual. Second, again, it's not being inferior. This is the argument that Paul makes that transcends culture because he's rooting it in creation. Because he's re- rooting it in creation. So verses 11 12, a couple of elements to consider. Um, these are the best definitions that I've found of these biblical um, understandings. Um, I don't think that these are uh, intended to dumb down what's happening in this text, because we see a few words here that are probably trigger words in our culture. We see authority, when we see submissiveness. Those words are probably triggering. Like, so so here, here, here's the what I believe to be sufficient uh, solid, biblical definitions. These are not original to me. Um, submission, like we see in verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submiss- submissiveness. Submission refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church. Okay, so get this. This is not for women alone. This is for men also. And this carries us into what we're going to be talking about next week when we start talking about the offices of the church, when we talk about elders, when we talk about deacons. Um, the elders in the church what Paul is getting at the thrust of 11 and 12 is that these are uh, roles and uh, offices for the elder but not every man is qualified to serve as an elder So submissiveness then refers to uh, the divine calling of the rest of the church, both men and women, to honor and affirm the leadership and teaching of the elders and to be equipped by them for the hundreds of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. And then secondly, we see authority, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Okay, Um, uh, authority refers to the (coughs) divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching of the church. So here's what Paul's not saying is, because this is within the context of the church. This is within the context of the local church. What Paul's saying, not saying, is that women are excluded from being CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Paul is not saying that here. Paul is not saying that in this text. Um, what he's saying is that women can't serve at all in the local church. Absolutely not. We would be in a world of hurt if our women did not serve uh, uh, all of the time. Um, he's not saying women don't deserve equal pay for equal work. That is I mean that that's important. Like we need to be advocates for that because if we believe that men and women are both created by God and in God's image, they should receive equal pay for equal work. And the list goes on. What Paul is saying within the structure of the church, women are called to be those who support the men who are called to serve the local churches, elders, overseers or pastors, same word, they're elders, overseers, pastors based on creation roles not based on inferiority. Women are called to serve the elders, the men who are called into those teaching, those leading positions, um, not based on creation roles, not based on inferiority. Um, So um, I'm I'm gonna gonna jump ahead here because I think uh, that we need to uh, address these last few verses because this is where they increasingly get a little more difficult here. So uh, let's go to verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created in that Eve, and then in verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Okay. Um, this here is not uh, what 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 typically has happened in the life of the church, and what this passage has been taught is that men say, well, women are more easily deceived. And that's not what this text says. It's silly. Women are not more easily deceived. We're all deceived. um, Equally. Okay. What he is saying happens here is that there was a role reversal in the garden. When the serpent came to Adam, or when the serpent came to Eve, he came to her as the one who is called to be the helper, and Adam was the one who is called to exercise dominion. And when she spoke to the... When she spoke to the... uh, the serpent, and he said, here, take of this, eat of this, this is good, it'll make you like God. And then she turned to her husband, who was presumably present, um, and said, here, take this, eat this, this is good. Eve was deceived and made a proposition to Adam. Adam ignored his divine charge, his divine role that was given in creation, um, and took it and ate, and therefore rebelled against God. And so this has then set the pattern for all of humanity of confusion related to divine roles Given for man and woman about conduct, the compatibility and complementarity, and this is why this is hard. This is why this is hard because it's rooted in uh, the fall. It's rooted in the fall where the <coughs> divinely given roles were were shirked and were set aside for a moment because they believed that they had there was something greater for them. Okay. Um, and okay, so and there's more to say there, but let's go to verse 15. And we'll, we will, uh, we'll finish here. Because, again, increasingly harder, right? Verse 15. But women will be preserved with bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and safety and self-restraint. Your Bible might say be saved. I think that that's a bit of a stretch. Like, the translation is a stretch. I, I opt for preserved because of the nature of childhood. Okay, so I've never given birth. Um, which is true, and and everyone knows that because yeah because my wife has I've been in the room it seems like a tough thing um, but, <laughs> I'm not going go to go into it more but what, what what's happening here is an understanding of Genesis three then and after men and women after their roles were were reversed or they were upended in the garden then what happens is uh, this curse, where God says, your pain, women, is going to be amplified, it's going to be multiplied in childbearing. Okay, we've been talking about suffering a lot. We've talked about suffering a lot, and what its nature is. We as a people, as believers, we do not set aside suffering, but we embrace it because we participate together with Christ in it, right? So this is part of this conversation. Since he's talking to women, he said, guess what? Childbearing is a tough thing. Like, that is hard. And in Romans chapter 5, when Paul is talking to the Romans, he says he says very specifically, well, let me, let me make sure that I don't misquote this. Um, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about what? Perseverance. Same word, preserve, in childbearing. This suffering that counts as a result of the curses. Now being used by God to preserve us, to preserve women um, in order that they might come to the end of their life. And then in the second half of this verse, if they continue in faith and love and safety and self-restraint, again, a gospel issue related to conduct. A gospel issue related to conduct. If you are being preserved, then the outworking of this, the outflow of it is love, faith, Sanctity with self-restraint. Okay. Okay, all right. So let me conclude here just very briefly by saying this. When considering how this impacts covenant membership of Both Church, men and women both created by God and in God's image. Men and women, both created by God. Uh, and in God's image. That means that we are, um, we are set in, up in such a way that, that we celebrate then the diversity that we have here in this congregation. Both divinely given roles, not one inter- inferior to the other, but complementary to each other. We see that the gospel produces an intended effect in our conduct as it plays itself out in the church. So, and then as we look at this text, we practically then affirm, we practically then affirm that the office of elder, the office of overseer, and the office of pastor, which is all the same office, that office is reserved for men. Um, because he roots this in created creation order um, and divinely given roles before sin entered and corrupted humanity. Next week, then we'll talk more about that. Again, what I said is like that role isn't isn't even offered to all men. It's offered to a specific subset. We're going to dive into that next week as we get into chapter three. Um, Okay, Um, but again, let me let me just let me admonish you in this. Like, if this is a text that that runs your way, that's totally wrong. But we need, as a people, to define, to see the things that, that we love more than Jesus. And sometimes that means hearing a difficult word out of God's word. Um, and sometimes that means that, that we need to do some significant searching. I think that equally as offensive is taking a text like this and just accepting it in phase value. I think we need to try it. I think we need to test it. I think we need to run it through filters. I think that we need to consider how our society actually engages with something like this, with this sort of thing. Because we are called to be able to give a defense for the faith that we have. And that's important, and that's why this text um, needs to be addressed while we need to continue pursuing um, a a greater understanding of it in our lives. So let's pray again.